Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. There were questions that needed to be answered. Disunity was threatening to rip the congregation apart. If you can think of an issue or a problem, that congregation seemed to be facing it all, all at one time. Personally, I can't imagine trying to be an elder of the congregation where so many issues and, and questions and Things were just swirling all the time and constantly all at the same time. And yet for all the struggles and all the issues and all the problems, they are still in Scripture called a church. They are still extended grace and peace from an apostle who also said that he always gave thanks for them. But even though they extended those good things, the thanks and the grace and the peace from an apostle, their problems were not swept under the rug. They were dealt with, and sometimes they were dealt with in a very direct and even blunt manner. In fact, right at the outset, when the apostle wrote to them, he would say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. How is that possible? How is it possible when you have so many issues and so many things swirling around constantly, how is it possible when you have all these disunities, these divisions that seem to be cropping up, how can it be possible for all of those people to truly be one? The solution to that problem is the same today as it was all the way back when Paul wrote those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And it centers around the very same thing that we read together in our scripture reading a few minutes ago when it comes down to the fact of our message. And that message that Paul centers their minds on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, is the same thing that we've been focusing on on Sunday nights throughout the month of March. And that, of course, is the cross. The cross was the center point of Paul's preaching, It was the center point of Paul's life. In fact, just a few verses later in the same book, he would write in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided or I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I have no doubt that Paul preached more than one sermon. He was there in Corinth. By that, I mean, I don't think he used the exact same sermon outline every time he made a proclamation or or a sermon. But what he was simply saying was everything that he delivered among them had its central focus, its grounding, if you please, in the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, a little later in his life, he could write these words. But far be it from me to boast except... 
in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6 and verse 14. And you may, you may also recall in that very same letter where he famously wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in or through me. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. The cross was the grounding point, the central focus of all that Paul wrote, all that Paul taught, and in fact it was upon him becoming a Christian, the very focus of his life. And it needs to be ours as well. But did you notice the wording of our title tonight? This is our message. The cross is our message. All the way back when Paul wrote that letter to the church at Corinth, that first letter to the church at Corinth, the cross was the answer. It was the answer to their disunity. It was the answer for weeding out sin in the congregation. The cross was the answer for dealing with arrogance and pride among the Christians. And may I suggest to you tonight that the cross continues to be the solution for all those types of problems among the Lord's people, even all these centuries later. I want us to spend our time tonight in that text of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. And there are more things there than we'll have time to to discuss tonight. But I want us to think about three aspects that make the cross our message. The message we need to live and believe and the message we need to be proclaiming to the world around us. In the first place, the cross is our message because the cross is where God's saving power is. Look again at verse 18 of our text. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What happened on the cross is what continues to save people. And did you notice the wording that people are being saved? There's a couple of different ways we could think about that. One of those ways could be for the individual Christian because we are saved when we contact the blood, of course, that was shed by Jesus. We contact that that by faith in the waters of baptism. But we continue to be saved, we might say sanctified, by coming back to the cross and being reminded of what happened there. But more in context with what Paul has in mind here is the fact that the cross continues to save people. No one will be saved apart from coming back to what happened at the cross. No matter what their background is, no matter where they live, no matter how much time passes between when the cross occurred and whenever the end of time is, no one will be saved apart from what happened there. People are being saved. But the question becomes, how does that happen? The cross combines for us in our minds both... God's grace and man's obedience. When we look at the cross from from the angle of God's grace, it is virtually impossible to miss it. You may think of some of the more famous verses in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, John 3.16. Paul would carry that same concept in Romans 5 and verse 8. For God shows or demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We understand 
that people choose to sin. Mankind chose to sin. Mankind chose to separate himself from God. And sin individually separates us from God, as Isaiah would write about or speak about in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. But God loves us enough and God has enough grace not only to make a way for us to be saved, but to have that way in mind from even before the foundation of the world. And it included his own son, giving his own son. If we ever look at the cross and fail to see God's grace, we have missed the point of what happened there. But the cross also carries us to the idea of our own obedience. It provides salvation. It's the power of salvation. And if you notice verse 21 of our text, it speaks of the fact that we must believe. We must obey. And it's easy for us to sit together on a Sunday evening and say, well, of course I believe in the cross. But do I really all the time? Do I really believe in the saving power of the cross for all people? Do we really want to bring people, not just to, as we studied a couple of Sunday mornings ago, the meek and mild Jesus, but also to the one who was crucified? Folks, the crucified Christ must be our message. If Jesus never went to the cross, then the rest of what He did really makes Him nothing more than just a good teacher or a philosopher of some kind. The cross is the central focus of the message. Our world does not need just another good teacher. And our world does not need just another decent philosophy. Our world needs a Savior. And that's where the cross comes into play. It is our message because it's where God placed salvation. But somebody says, how is it possible that a crucified Christ is what brings salvation? And that's the second part of our message. And that is that the cross proves the wisdom of God. So much of the opening part of the book of 1 Corinthians deals with the wisdom of God. And so we may find it a bit curious that some of that wisdom centers on the cross of Jesus. But that's precisely Paul's argument that the cross seems foolish to people as far as just a a human mindset. But in reality, it proves God's wisdom. And let's be honest. Oftentimes, even though we are often advanced and technologically advanced and intelligent, sometimes the things that we believe and hold to prove not to be all that reliable. In 1902, bicycles had become quite popular for, of course, a couple of decades by that time. But the popularity began to to lessen as far as how many were sold and ridden just for fun. And so on August the 7th of 1902, the Washington Post spoke of the fad as passing and included this statement. The popularity of the wheel is doomed. I'm kind of glad they were wrong, aren't you? And in fact, just a couple of years later, the New York Sun would write, as a fad, cycling is dead. Some of you still enjoy that fad all these years later, more than a century later. We say, well, that was 1902, 1906, that was a long time ago. We haven't gotten a whole lot more intelligent. The New York Times in 1985 wrote a long-form article about a technology that was passing away and that no one would ever use for much longer, and certainly not more than a couple of years beyond the article. That technology was the laptop computer with which I typed this lesson tonight. So either I'm way behind the times, or the New York Times just happened to be wrong. I point those out just to say that while we may be wise and intelligent in a lot of ways, we often show ourselves as people to be foolish. 
And we see that on display when we think about God's plan for saving mankind being centered in the cross. Paul wrote about in our text how Jews and Greeks could not get their mind around the cross. First he said that Jews demand signs and they consider the cross a stumbling block. Paul knew that it was true that during the ministry of Jesus that the Jews demanded signs. You might think of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38 where Jews came to him and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Just after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd around him in John 6 and verse 6, he said, Then what sign do you do that we may believe you? What work do you perform? He had just done one of the more amazing ones. What was sadly ironic was, of course, the Jews saw sign after sign or miracle after miracle from Jesus. In fact, John, in his account of the gospel, would call them signs because signs point to something. They direct you to something, but yet they didn't get it. And they fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah had said, while seeing they may not see and not perceive, and while hearing they may not hear and not understand, Mark 4 and verse 12. But even more than that, after the life of Christ, they continued to see certain signs during that first century as the apostles continued to perform miracles. In fact, in the very next letter that Paul would write to that church in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he said that they had seen the signs of a true apostle that were performed among you. They continued to see signs. In other words, those who were Jewish had all the signs they ever could have wanted or needed, and yet many of them chose not to believe. It was a stumbling block because the idea of putting one on a tree that was accursed, putting one on a cross, they could not get over that. But then he said that Greeks seek wisdom and see the cross as folly. When we think of ancient Greece, we often think of teaching or philosophy. And we think of some of those great philosophers of their day and time, Plato and Socrates and others. And we see how Paul could write about how they, they, they seek wisdom. They, they want to know things. And you might think of when Paul went to Athens in Acts chapter 17. And we're told there that those who met up on the Areopagus or Mars Hill wanted to do nothing except hear some new thing. They wanted to just know these new philosophies and things that were going around all the time. But still, even though they heard these things, the idea of a crucified Savior, well, that was more than just some little philosophy to them. It didn't make logical sense to kill the Savior. That, that, that doesn't make sense. And so Paul could write that it seemed folly to them, or if you were looking at the, the uh, King James and other translations that uses the word foolish there, the word that's translated folly or foolishness is actually the word from which we get our word moron or moronic. We might simply say that to the Greeks, the idea of a crucified Savior was absolutely absurd. That's the way they thought about it. But in the midst of that very same discussion in our text, Paul had already quoted from Isaiah 29 and verse 14 when he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This whole section, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, it continues on. But this whole section of the letter is reminding us that no matter how we might look at something as wise or as foolish, if it is God's way, it is always wise. And it is always powerful. And it is always right. I want to read to you a paragraph from Brother Burton Kaufman. As he was writing about this text, he wrote this. He said, Despite the Jewish law, which declared, He that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. And the hierarchy of Israel having accomplished such a death for the Lord of glory, 
The cross was the instrument of Jesus' atonement for the sins of the whole world. It was the place where God, having entered our earthly life as a man, paid the penalty of human transgression, bruised the head of Satan, and purchased the church with His own precious blood. The glory of the cross is seen in what is denied, what is declared, what is accomplished, whom is defeated, and whom it saved. All the human wisdom of all the ages is powerless to achieve the most infinitesimal fraction of the redemption that was achieved to the uttermost at Calvary. End quote. There is no way that a few sermons on Sunday nights or in reality even in a lifetime of study that we could ever truly wrap our minds fully around everything that happened on the cross of Calvary. But I know this, that if we collected all of our wisdom tonight and tried to come up with a a plan of our own to save mankind, we could have never come up with this one. We could have never thought of it. And in the wisdom of God, that is the only plan, since Jesus was the only perfect Lamb of God. The cross is our message because it's not our own wisdom. The cross is our message because it puts on display the wisdom of God. But then number three, the cross is our message because the cross unites people. I love verse 24 of our text where Paul does not just say that all of this is the power of God and the wisdom of God, but did you notice in the text that he makes sure to mention there that this is true for both Jews and Greeks? And all of that ties back to verse 10 that I quoted near the beginning of our lesson. How do you get all of these different groups of people who have this different different backgrounds and different cultures, how do you get them to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment? You bring them together at the cross. In fact, you can only bring people together fully in the most important ways when we realize that the footing is level at the bottom of the cross. Look, Jews in Corinth, in the first century anyway, were always going to have their religious heritage. They were always going to be able to look back and talk about the law of Moses. Some of them are going to be able to look back and say, I've been faithful to God my whole life. I was faithful in the Old Testament law, and now I'm faithful under the, the law of Christ or the New Testament. And they had every reason to be grateful for that background. Paul would talk about that in the book of Romans, about how they have all these advantages. Greeks were always going to be able to say that they had this philosophical background, the great education, all those things in their culture. And those types of things were not magically going to go away. But whether one was a Jew in Corinth or whether one was a Greek at Corinth, neither one had any advantage on the other in view of the cross of Jesus Christ. Neither should be able to look down upon the other when they're staring upward at the cross. And considering that baptism is what connects us to the blood that was shed there on the cross, when Jew and Greek were baptized, they all became one in Christ through the washing of His blood. Which is why Paul could write in Galatians chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That verse leaves no one out who is saved, Jew or Greek. It didn't make any difference. Jews and Greeks alike were called by the same gospel. 
Jews and Greeks alike obeyed the same Lord. And while they still had different talents, they still had different backgrounds, they still had certain different cultural practices, they became one, or they could become one, because of what happened on the cross. It's what unites people. You know, today in Haleyville, Alabama, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody arguing over the Jew-Gentile problem or the Jew-Greek problem. That's not really an issue that, that we face in, in 2018 in, in our culture, in our, in our society where we live now. But may I point out the fact that too often in our culture, we still have things that are superficial at best that divide us that will be taken away if we would simply focus our attention on the cross. We live in times, for example, where race relations are awful in our nation. The gospel does not darken or lighten a person's skin color. Going to the cross does not make one change his or her particular ethnic background and suddenly forget their background or their heritage. But I'll tell you this. If I look at the cross and I think for one moment that because I am of a certain skin color that I'm privileged, I've got another thing coming. We are the same when it comes to the cross. Those things don't matter anymore. Some who are raised in the church, who've, who've been going to worship their entire life, well, they may smile when someone from the world is converted, but if we're not careful, we can feel a tinge of pride because I've had an advantage of growing up in a Christian home and having all those things in my background. On the other side of the coin, someone who's converted out of the world can, can think, look at what I've had to overcome. And you've had it easy your whole life. You, you, you had all the advantages. When the fact of the matter is, we were all sinners and you'd be saved by the grace of God at the cross. And we can list any number of other things, but those two are enough to show that we need to focus our attention going, on going back to the cross And realizing that what Jesus did there is the only thing that can truly unite people in the most important of ways. And in a society that we're we're told constantly, we're fed the messaging constantly of wanting to be in this camp or that camp and making sure you have all the right labels and all the right names and trying to see all the differences, Christians had better have a different message. That message needs to be that the only thing that can bring people together, truly together, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be a message that's shared. If I may alter one verse of Scripture to make it a plural instead of a singular, our message simply needs to be, far be it from us to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take one look around our society, and I hope you will see why this needs to be our message and why we need to be living it and proclaiming it. You think about how people try to to tear people apart or or try to win people to other things. You want to win people to, to a certain party or to a certain team or to make sure that we see the differences in race or ethnicity or culture or language or background. Folks, Jesus did not come to bring division based on those types of things. He came to draw people to Himself. But when did that happen? Oh, it happened in words that we base a song off of that He said, How to reach the masses, men of every birth. For an answer, Jesus gave the key. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto 
me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that must be our message. Our message does not need to be, I'm right and you're wrong because. Our message needs to be, I, like you, was a sinner lost and going to hell. But praise God, Jesus saved me and He can save you too. If that's not a message that this world needs to hear, I don't know what message is. But it must not be my message or your message. It must be our message. The same message that ties us all the way back to the early church who went around, went around proclaiming that Jesus is crucified and Jesus is risen. And that men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, are one when they are one in Him. The only question left for me to ask tonight is, are you in Him? Are you in Him? The New Testament teaches us that to be in Him, we are baptized into His blood. We are baptized into His name. Have you been baptized into Christ? Immersed in water. That's where sins are washed away. That's where you contact that saving power that we talked about a few moments ago. That's where that happens. And you will be saved if you do that in full faith, believing that what He did there is God's power to save. Brother or sister in Christ, are you living in such a way that people know that you are a saved person. And that anyone and everyone who would do what you did as a Christian will be saved, will be one, and will be in heaven together. Are you living that message as a faithful Christian? Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, or if you need to return in faith, we invite you to come while we stand and sing to encourage you.